You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Practice. As a teenager, fencing was the closest thing I knew to desire. All the girls swapping one uniform for another before practice their white dresses replaced by breeches. I thought we were princes in a fairy tale with a twist, since there were no princesses to be taken, wed. As knights, we were told to aim for an imaginary spot just above our opponent's left breast. Often, I left a bruise, the blade's tip ricocheting off chest guards onto flesh. Just as often, I would feel yellow blooms of ache where the girl I thought was beautiful had pierced my heart. Hours later, I would transform. I would head back home with a deepening sense of dread, my bruises fading to quiet. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Scottish Poetry Library's podcast series. My name is Colin Waters and I won't be your host for the next 30 minutes. In a slight change from our usual way of doing things, I'm delighted to welcome back to the podcast... Susanna V. Evans, who regular listeners will recall interviewed Mark Ford for us last year. Earlier this year, Susanna interviewed Mary Jean Chan at Stanza, Scotland's Poetry Festival, and we're delighted to present that conversation now. You've already heard Chan read one poem at the start of the show, and you'll hear her read more during the podcast. These poems are taken from our recently published debut collection for Faber, Flesh. Chan was born in 1990 and raised in Hong Kong and studied at Oxford and the University of London. In addition to Flesh, she is the author of A Hurry of English, which was selected as the 2018 Poetry Book Society Summer Pamphlet Choice. She was shortlisted for the 2017 Forward Prize for Best Single Poem, becoming the youngest shortlistee in the prize's history. She is currently shortlisted for the 2019 Forward Prizes in the Best Single Poem category again and is the recipient of a 2019 Eric Gregory Award. So, without much further ado, I'll hand over to Susanna. And I wanted to start by asking you about your poem, How It Must Be Said, from which the title of your pamphlet, A Hurry of English, is taken. Mm-hmm. And in the poem you ask, what does it say about me, this obsession written in a language I never chose? Mm-hmm. And you've spoken... A little bit about writing in English in the essay you wrote for Wild Court, which is connected with King's College, Mm -hmm. about why you write in English having grown up in Hong Kong. And I wondered if you could just tell me a little bit more about that and how how that's worked and how that feels. I think, yeah, so the essay that I wrote for Wild Court, I guess, explores a bit of the kind of language acquisition Mm -hmm. part of my life, which... You know, growing up in a sort of a school that really privileged English um, and really obviously has benefited me in many ways, but it's not until much later that I realized that that was part of like a colonial education, basically, mm-hmm. where your mother tongue is essentially seen as not as important. Um, and that was like a systematic thing. It wasn't just a, you know, one teacher felt that way. It was, it was this kind of overwhelming feeling of I needed to master a language that wasn't the one that I used at home with my parents. Um, I think that had an interesting effect because obviously it it forced me to really improve my English quite rapidly, which was a good thing because it made me bilingual. Um, On the other hand, English then became something that was personal and private. Mm -hmm. So 
because it wasn't what I used with my family, it became my own language, essentially. And I do mention elsewhere a bit about how, you know, I discovered Shakespeare and in Shakespeare there was some, you know, gender bending going on and there were queer undertones. And for someone who was at the time unable to articulate these feelings or grapple with my, you know, being queer, that was really helpful. Um, it was very comforting. It felt you know, exciting and fun, and it was linked to a language that I was sort of falling in love with. Um, so there was like multiple things at play, and so in a way, I, I began to love English because of that, because I was reading things that resonated with my experience or you know what I was becoming. And then when I went to the U.S. for my undergraduate studies, I encountered the poetry of Adrian Rich and a few other you know feminist queer poets like uh, Audre Lorde and June Jordan, and you know all the other. Um, amazing American voices, um, James Baldwin, etc., and that that just made me realize that I wanted to write as well. So up until then, I'd mainly been a reader of English poetry and literature, but then that made me want to participate, and so I started taking creative writing workshops here and there. So I was quite a late comer to poetry, I suppose. Like I didn't really start until I might. 20s, mm-hmm. early 20s. Mm-hmm. And, and thinking more about multilingualism, um, so you reviewed Phoebe Powers' um, collection, The yeah. Shrines of Upper Austria, mm-hmm. and in your review you admire the way, um, this is what you wrote, that, um, that power lets the reader sit with the fact of two languages jostling against each other, mm-hmm. and sort of pointing out that in um, the UK and Anglophone countries, mm-hmm. Um, multilingualism is sort of seen as this novelty when actually right. most of the people in the world are multilingual. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered if you'd ever incorporated words from Cantonese, Mandarin Chinese, mm-hmm. Shanghainese, you mentioned uh, your mother's mother tongue. Yes. Um, if, you'd, if you'd experimented with writing and sort of incorporating those languages with English before mm-hmm. directly or whether it's right. something that you've just sort of talked about Mm-hmm. without using the, the words directly. Sure, yeah, no. Um, so in the collection, there are two poems that actually do that. So uh-huh. one of them, I suppose, in a way, I was inspired by Phoebe's work, and one of them is essentially a poem that just has Chinese characters in it. And a bit like you know what Phoebe's poem did for me is that the reader is supposed to just reckon with the fact that they can't mm. penetrate this. And, and even more so than, I suppose, an Anglophone or... Germanic language, for example, the reader, in, in the case of Chinese characters, can't even try to pronounce the words, right? You can't even try to sound it out, or there's no access point. Mm-hmm. But I leave those words untranslated and unglossed, and, and sort of just to let the reader sit with that, right? And the fact that there is, it's almost, it reads as an erasure poem almost, because mm-hmm. there are sort of gaps mm-hmm. in, in the text. But in a way, that's something that I think is very common, especially for ESL speakers, because I once found English impenetrable. There were so many words I didn't know that I, I, I read the text and would have to jump over words because I didn't know what they meant. I had to look them up in a dictionary. And for me, it was this gradual process of acquiring vocabulary to the point where nowadays I still find myself learning new words and or being self-conscious about not knowing what that word means because it's a, a British slang, for example, that I've never encountered before. And and so to, to kind of offer that back to the reader who might be monolingual and to say, you know, this is quite a common experience mm. for a lot of people, learning English as well. And so I'm thinking about uh, words and kind of vocalising, and do you, do you ever, when you're composing poetry, voice it aloud? Is that mm. part of your compositional process or, or editing process, or is it very much sort of 
a written thing on the page? Um, I think you're right about voicing because I do often, more so when I edit than when I write, but when I sort of think the poem has been formed, I, I do read it out loud and then whilst reading it, realise that, you know, musically certain words don't sit well together or that just wasn't the right word to begin with, I needed to change it to something else. And I find it, yeah, very helpful to kind of read it through to get a sense of does it work in my voice, you know, or is it something that I've just kind of mimicked that's not really me. I think you can actually tease a lot out of your writing when you're vocalising it versus just looking at it on the page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I and I do really appreciate poets who read and perform their work, you know, in a, in a way that is like embodied and you know, to me that's quite important as well. So I often am drawn to those poets, you know, who not only write beautifully but read beautifully mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. And your mother, or mm-hmm. the the mother of the, is, is sort of a, a primary figure mm-hmm. in a hurry of English. Mm-hmm. And so in the first poem of the collection, you picture her translating your poems with the bilingual dictionary. Mm-hmm. The poem sort of speaks about the different ways in which the you of the poem is seeking her approval. So you've got the lines, always the lips wishing they could kiss those mouths you would approve of. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if English ever felt like a transgression in that sense as well. Yeah, certainly. There is an element of, you know, maybe I should be writing in Chinese or I'm writing in a language that my mother doesn't read easily. So is that, in a way, a betrayal of of our relationship? Thankfully, I don't think she sees it that way. You know, I think we've had discussions about potentially me, like, translating my poems into Chinese, and that's something I could do later down the line. Mm -hmm. I have translated one or two poems for her, and maybe increasingly if the poems become multilingual then she will actually be able to understand the things that, you know, <laughs> That would be fascinating. Yeah, the mainstream reader can read, right? Yeah, she's yeah. able to access the other bit. I think it helps as well that she writes in Chinese. So in her sort of early 30s, she was a script writer. And, and in sort of now in her 60s, she's kind of gone back to writing again. And I think she partly says, although that just might be encouragement, she says that my, my focus on writing brought her back to her writing as well. And so she shares her work with me. And so even though I'm not able to do the same, there is that maybe tacit understanding that writers have to write what they need to write. And so there's an element of artifice in this, right? It's not all just about these are the facts of our lives because it's not. I wouldn't say that from reading my pamphlet or my collection, you will know my mother or know our relationship. I don't think that's true. It's, It's a sort of a a piece of work that's been created through imagination, through embellishment, through all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And so this is not my real mother in a way. It's not autobiographical in that sense. So I think she gets that as well, which has been helpful. Yeah, yeah. And um, the blurb of A Hurry of English speaks about your writing as um, an addition to the world of queer writing in the UK. And I was wondering if there were other queer writers who sort of helped you formulate your sort of literary response to sexuality in, in your own mm. writing? Yeah, I think plenty, really. Um, you know, I mentioned Adrian Rich earlier. Um, I've been reading, you know, people like Danette Smith and Jericho Brown and all these sort of newer, well, like I say, not that new, but sort of in the UK context, newer American voices, the way they kind of just grapple with these themes so boldly and head-on has really been helpful. Chen Chen's another American poet I really love. Um, he's Asian-American. 
And in terms of the British scene, I mean, people like Andrew Macmillan and yeah. Richard Scott and yeah. Jay Bernard, who has their book coming out soon as well. Um, yeah, they've been really important to, to the way I write because it almost feels like they're sort of friends. I can buy their book and yeah. have it at home and constantly refer back to them for comfort, for solace, for ways to navigate my own yeah. sensibilities. And so that's been really helpful yeah your forthcoming collection has a brilliant title oh thank you <laughs> it's called Glad you like it flesh mm-hmm. um which which is the french word for arrow um and um it's an offensive technique used in ippy yeah which mm-hmm. is similar to fencing or is so it's a kind of fencing right yes okay so fencing there are three sort of swords yeah foil epi and saber and they're all like olympic sports but you can only usually you specialize in one of them okay yeah it's that. <laughs> and then it's also the English, well, it, it sonically, it, it sounds like the, the English word flesh. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how you came up with the title and whether it was sort of something that you thought about for a while or whether it just sort of came to you and, and seemed to fit the... Yeah, um, thanks for asking that. I think for me, it, it sort of jumped out from the manuscript one day. Um, I was struggling a bit with pinning down a title. And then when I was reading, so it's a, it's a word from one of my poems that was initially called The Fencer, and now it's the title poem, just called Flesh, basically. I suddenly started realizing that the trope of fencing, the idea of masks, the idea of you know defending yourself um, against an imaginary opponent even, or an actual opponent, um, the idea of dueling, the relationship between two bodies that can sometimes be conflictual, sometimes be tender, that just kind of was coming through increasingly in the manuscript. Mm-hmm. And then I read that poem about sort of the fencing process, and then I was like, oh, actually, this could work as a title because, as you say, it embodies both the vulnerable flesh, but then there's also the weaponized flesh. Yeah. Um, and there's that duality of wanting both. You want to be vulnerable and kind of open to the world, but also when that brings about hurt and shame and difficulty, specifically from a queer perspective sometimes, or even from a racialized perspective, um, depending on which country you're in, then then there is this urge to defend yourself, to armor yourself, um, and I think both are true. And so for me, that was like a thing that worked with the title. And also... I mean, it was sort of an unintentional thing, but the fact that I was reflecting on the idea that growing up, obviously my fencing coaches would speak to us in Cantonese. But because these certain techniques were French words, we would be taught these French words in amongst Cantonese, you know, so it'd be Cantonese, Cantonese, <laughs> suddenly a French word, right? Like flesh or like parry riposte or yeah. on guard or, you know, like get ready kind of thing. And so that was in its own way a multilingual situation where Chinese students were taught French through the sport and I wanted to embody that as well that mm-hmm. that my upbringing was multilingual in that specific way beyond English and Chinese but I, I was also wondering what the experience of putting your first collection together was like because your pamphlet came out in 2018 mm-hmm. your collection's coming out and it's sort of hot on the heels in 2019 yeah. <laughs> was that um, has that been a lot of work travelling from the pamphlet to the length collection you know there's certainly a lot of I suppose serendipity involved in that um ignition press was a new press and they happened to be sort of inviting submissions at a time when i thought you know i'd like to put something together that was not just separate poems mm-hmm. and so when that worked out i was i was ecstatic and then i started thinking and hoping that i would start you know maybe look towards a full collection but 
realistically also knowing how long it takes, I kind of just thought I'd start now and wait to be rejected and then, you know, keep, keep the process going because who knows how long it'll take. And, and I was just very lucky that it happened to kind of work out consecutively in a way. Um, yeah, so none of that was really planned, even though obviously the, the plan was I would try for different things, but the fact that it ended up, you know, working out was, was like a a huge bonus. And yeah. Um, but it was, it was an enjoyable process. I think I was telling, um, another coach just now that, I think the pamphlet was really formative because up until then I had not really envisioned them as like a collection Mm -hmm. and didn't really realize that, you know, poems have to speak to each other. You have to think a lot about, you know, form as well. And do you want to duplicate the same form over and over? And how do you, you know, sequence the poems? Mm -hmm. And so I worked with Alan Buckley um, very closely because we were assigned like individual editors. So um, I worked one-on-one with Alan for the pamphlet and he was, very incisive as an editor and was able to kind of help me see this as an object versus in the past I just saw them as poems um, and gave a lot of like really good editorial feedback so that that felt like a huge milestone in seeing that come to fruition and that sort of prepared me a lot I think for the actual book. Your lecture in creative writing in poetry at Oxford Brooks um, and in your pamphlet you talk about the scholarship that enabled you to write some of the poems mm-hmm. um, at Royal Holloway. Mm-hmm. So. And I wondered how instrumental for your writing it was that you had the opportunity to do a creative writing degree and to, to study it in the university context. Because I think it's something that I encounter a lot of scepticism about, yes. often from poets maybe who are of an older generation or who've not had that as part of their poetic landscape. Sure. And sometimes from people who, who don't actually read contemporary poetry a lot and I was just wondering what your response to that sort of scepticism would would be yeah I think it's interesting because I can certainly see that some poets just through you know reading and writing on their own or taking courses at the poetry school or Faber Academy or all these amazing you know options at which I've actually done most of these things as well beyond the academy I've gone to poetry school I've gone I've done online classes just basically sought to apprentice myself wherever I can it just so happened that for me um, having a structured year of during the MA specifically when all I really was required to do was write being given permission you know to do that and to take myself seriously as a poet that in my case felt really crucial because mm. up until then I was actually doing poetry on the side and, and had majored in political science and done other things that you know my focus was never entirely on writing Mm -hmm. and I felt like I couldn't do that but then once I'd sort of been given this year and and I needed to write poems every week because otherwise you wouldn't have anything to (laughs) workshop right that that kind of was so crucial for me and just saying okay you're going to dedicate yourself to this and actually people you know your peers your um, tutor they take your emerging work very seriously and Mm -hmm. you are going to critique it in a way that you know they're going to take a lot of care with your work and that that to me felt really nurturing and so in a way, I guess that's what I try to do now as a lecturer mm-hmm. in creative writing, much more than teaching anything. It's about trying to elicit what's already there and, and giving people permission to try things. Um, specifically for a lot of undergrads, I'm realizing there's a lot of fear towards poetry as a genre, actually, maybe because of A-level or this notion of poetry as being more exalted than mm-hmm. prose. So everyone comes wanting to do prose and being fearful of poetry but actually just like demystifying what poetry can and should sound like or look like. Mm-hmm. I think that's already yielded some results in the sense of people are trying poetry 
yeah. or less afraid of being a poet versus being a fiction writer, which somehow seems permissible. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think my answer to the skeptics would be, it's what you make of it, and I don't think it's like a one-size-fits-all, everyone should go do an MA. Surely not, because you know, we're all different people. <laughs> but yeah. I guess the idea of having a, a critic, someone to close-read your work and to offer feedback, having a mentor, that's surely like beneficial in whatever context, whether yeah. it's in the academy or beyond the academy. And having peers who like you respect and who will actually take the time to give you feedback, again, the workshop just facilitates that. But you can also do that like you know, in a group that's not within the university. So, yeah, I think it's not for everyone, but it's also certainly very beneficial for some people. And for <laughs> me, it worked. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Thinking about reading as well as writing, mm-hmm. I was wondering if there are poets who you feel like you will always return to them mm-hmm. as a reader. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there are a lot. And, and it kind of changes. I think it depends on where my writing is at a certain point in time but I suppose kind of recently if we're talking about past year or so because I write a lot about my mother I found Emily Berry's Stranger Baby mm-hmm. really kind of inspiring and because of the way she writes about her relationship uh, to her mother and it just offered me permission to do certain things that I didn't realize I could do Claudia Rankine's Citizen was something that I so I focused on it for my MA dissertation actually and just again found it a hugely liberating text because of her use of prose poetry and also just the second person you and and though these might not be unique to Rankine's poetics so many people have done that it it came to me at a point in my writing that it resulted in a shift in how I was you know creating work Mm -hmm. um Kai Miller the cartographer tries to map a way to Zion is another work again just the way he uses dramatic monologue it it again sort of opened doors for me yeah, um, yeah. that I realized writing in persona might be extremely helpful in certain situations where I can't really speak from my personal experience because it's not me and the speaker is you know thrice removed or someone I never met even but how do you tap into that experience um, while still channeling you know certain emotions and thoughts like I found the, the cartographer really insightful so those were sort of a few books I kept returning to but yeah, it might yeah. change um, yes. depending on Yes. what I'm working on. And since then, you've, you've published academically on, on Claudia Rankine's... Yeah, just that one article. article. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's interesting to think just how she weaves together all these sort of different... the, the visual arts. Yes, exactly. That component of it. Yeah. And how it's poetic. Mm. And there's also a kind of prosy element to it. Yes. In the way that maybe Maggie Nelson... Is, yes, is sort I love of, Maggie Nelson. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> probably. And kind of, kind of hybrid. And, and again, thinking yeah. of going back like people like David Jones the mm-hmm. Anglo-Welsh who's, who's sort of again like book length kind of prose poem right and you, you've got a couple of prose poems in a hurry of English mm-hmm. as well yeah and the actual collection as well Thank you. prose poetry is yes. yeah and it's very timely that um, Jeremy Noel Todd has come up yes. with a penguin book of prose poetry yeah um, it just feels like that's a genre that a lot of people are talking about now, but yeah. I also find it, yeah, hugely liberating in certain ways because it, it functions differently yeah. to the lyric or yeah. Yeah, lineated verses. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I was wondering if we could finish by um, hearing a few of your poems. Okay. And the, the first one I thought about was um, your poem. We discussed how to sort of, well, pronounce the title because it's... Um, the two sort of forward slashes, but the, the Chopsticks poem, and yes. this is the poem that was nominated, um, shortlisted for the 2017 Forward Prize for Best Single Poem. So if we, yeah, if we could hear that, that would be okay. amazing. 
My mother lays the table with chopsticks and ceramic spoons. Expects you to fail at dinner. To the Chinese, you and I are chopsticks, lovers with the same anatomies. My mother tells you that chopsticks in Cantonese sounds like the swift arrival of suns. My mother tongue rejoices in its dumbness before you as expletives detonate. Two women, two men, disgrace. Tonight, I forget that I am bilingual. I lose my voice in your mouth. Kiss till blood comes. So sorry does not slip on an avalanche of syllables into sorrow. I tell you that as long as we hold each other, no apology will be enough. Tonight, I am dreaming again of tomorrow, another chance to eat at the feast of the living, with chopsticks balanced across the bridges of our hands as we imbibe each yes, spit out every no. Among scraps of shell or bone, father says, "Kids these days are not as tough as we used to be. So many suicides in one week. How many times have you and I wondered about leaving our bodies behind, the way many of us have already left? My friend's sister loved a woman for ten years, and each word she says to her mother stings like a paper cut." Each word she does not say burns like the lines she etches carefully into skin. I have stopped believing that secrets are a beautiful way to die. You came home with me for three hundred days to show my family that dinner together won't kill us all. So I think the the endings of your poems. I was I was going to ask you about this actually. They they sort of seem to. Sometimes they're quite devastating, like in the poem about the wet nurse.、Mm-hmm. But there, there always seems to be、um, just very kind of carefully formulated, and often either quite devastating or quite beautiful, or even almost there's sort of a touch of humour in、oh. the end of that poem. I think. Thanks.、Uh, and is something you pay particular attention to as you're writing? That's a good question. I suppose I don't sort of think to myself consciously that oh, the ending needs to be. You know, whatever. But interestingly enough, I think in the editing process for the book,、um, I've been offered、uh, some advice from Matthew, the editor,、um, mm-hmm. which is that sometimes the endings can be almost a bit too clean, and that rather it might be even more powerful to stop earlier or to kind of end in a way that's slightly more ambiguous,、mm-hmm. and in that way you're you're leaving it open to the reader,、um, and it might feel. Slightly uncomfortable doing that, but actually, it's it's sort of a more sophisticated approach. And、mm-hmm. a few poems now actually appear in a form that has tried to adopt that advice. And I think actually that makes the work better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So rather than being da-da, it's something slightly <laughs>、yeah. more pulled back. Yeah, but yeah. Hopefully more effective. Yeah. And that, my friends, is it for another episode in the Scottish Poetry Library's podcast series. Let us end as tradition dictates with some thank yous. So、uh, the first thank you is to you, dear listener, for listening. Another great big thank you to, of course, Susanna B. Evans,、uh, who was your host for the past half hour. Thanks also to our poet、uh, Mary Jean Chan, and thanks also to Stanza Scotland's Poetry Festival. If you want to keep in touch, what the Poetry Library is up to between podcasts, we of course have. A fabulous website www. scottishpoetrylibrary. org. uk, 
and all the social medias, uh, Twitter, our Twitter tag is at By Leaves We Live. Facebook, type our name in uh, to their search engine, you'll find us. I think it's Scottish Poetry Library <laughs> or SPL Scotland, one or two. And also on Instagram, and I think that is SPL Scotland if you're looking for our Instagram handle. So, onward and upward, friends, uh, I shall leave you now with one last poem by our poet, uh, Mary Jean Chan. Just to remind you, her debut collection is called Flesh. It's published by Faber. It's very worthwhile your time. If you can't afford to buy it, we of course have it on our shelves at the Poetry Library. And so, I'll stop yakking and stop getting in the way of our final poem. Thank you and goodbye. Notes Towards an Understanding 1. When you said, why didn't you warn me about cultural differences? I didn't know whether you meant my mother's face all darkened like a curtain or the vegetables. 2. When mother said, the contours of her ears are calamitous, I momentarily reflected on my own auditory shells, whether they too played a part in my irrevocable queerness. 3. When father said, I find language to be a very difficult thing, I wondered if he was apologising for his silences how he said nothing when mother detonated my name. 4. When I said, I want to shout at all of you, but in which language? My mind was tuned to two frequencies, mother's Cantonese rage, your soothing English, asking me to choose. Thank you for downloading this Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.